and welcome to another episode of the Vikingology Podcast. Our guest today is none other than Eric Schumacher, author of historical fiction books about the Vikings, kind of like me. And uh, we're going to be diving into more of the art side of the phenomenon of the Vikings. So up to now, we have talked a lot about the history. We've had historians on the show. And now we're going to veer shift gears a little bit, a little bit like how we did with answering the question, why are the Vikings so popular? And now we're going to get into more of the popular culture, how Vikings figure in literature, modern literature, uh, modern media, etc. Uh, so to start us off, Eric, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you, you very much. Tell us a little bit about your work and how you started down this path of exploring the Viking Age through fiction. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a long road. First and foremost, thank you very much for having me on. Um, I feel sort of honored and humbled to be in the midst of uh, a lot of historians and, and fascinating guests. So thank you. Um, and yeah, I mean, just in terms of my own experience with Vikings, I think it started a long time ago when I was in elementary school. Um, I, I don't know if you've played Dungeons and Dragons, but I was a big fan of Dungeons and Dragons back in the day. And my brother liked to go on adventures. He was older than me, but he didn't like putting together the actual adventures. So I was the storyteller and the dungeon master. Um, and that sort of segued into reading a lot of Tolkien. And in Tolkien, you've got, you know, Boromir and Faramir and some fascinating characters who are quote unquote barbarians, I guess, um, humanoid characters, but you also had dwarves with runes and elves and the elven characters and in language. Um, so all of that got me interested in medieval history. And from there, kind of segued into Vikings just because Vikings were a fascinating group of people um that did a lot of really interesting things not only from their ship technology but you know their exploration um their successes their failures um just how close we actually came to speaking old norse across the world i mean if you think about how close they actually came to taking over all of england in the time you know in that time period um it was pretty fascinating to me uh, and so i just dove in deeper and deeper and you know, that's, I think that's where it stems from. Um, and I haven't, that, that allure, that sort of love for Vikings hasn't really abated. I, you know, I love it. You can always so, find something new there. I can always find something new. I mean, there's new research coming out all the time. So, um, you know, I mean, just recently when I was writing actually um, Sigurd's Swords, which is the second in my most recent series, I came across research that talked about, um, giant tar pits that they found in Sweden and the tar production was actually being done on sort of this industrial scale which they hadn't known before but you know once you start thinking about that you start thinking about well of course I mean that must have been the case right because um, the fleets that you know ended up being you know put into the water by these kings were were massive fleets for the time um, and I actually wrote a blog post just on what it took to create one Viking ship just if you think about all the timber and all of the wool and all of the tar and, you know, all the steel and metal, um, it was pretty phenomenal, right? I mean, it took years of production and then there's hundreds and hundreds of these, right? So it had to have happened on an industrial scale. So just running across things like that, I, 
I definitely, I'd go down rabbit holes and, you know, find myself just getting more and more fascinated by all of that. I think it's interesting that you mentioned starting with D and D right. And, and that fantasy realm that draws a lot of its inspiration from the history side of things. Our conversation with Judith Yesh revealed that she had started with Lord of the Rings yeah. as, you know, as a, you know, and I, I arguably, I started with the Lord of the Rings, right. Uh, as well. And, and D and D I, I still play D and D we have a group. It's hard to get all of us adults yeah, together on a regular basis, but we're still doing it. But I find it interesting. And, and she veered more in the academic space. And then you veered more into the creation of your own fiction. What, it, what, in your estimation, do you think led to choosing that path over, over the other? Um, well, I just didn't have the time to do D and D anymore. Um, and a lot of my friends sort of lost interest in it over time. And so I kind of veered into the sports and other things when I was in, in high school. Um, but I had always written strangely enough. So I would actually come home from high school and I would write stories, short stories, long form stories, um, and I never really thought of it as a career path. I just was something I loved to do. Um, if I was in high school and I got an assignment, I hated studying for tests, but I loved writing essays. Um, and it was the way I sort of learned and, and the things I enjoyed and sort of gravitated to. So it wasn't until I was actually in business school, funny enough, um, studying for an accounting exam and thinking to myself, hey, this sucks. Um, and B, I should be writing a story, right? I was living in Germany at the time and it was almost this, like the apple falls on my head and I'm like, you know, I should be doing something else. Uh, unfortunately, I was in business school and I had student loans pay off. And so I had to go into the business world and get some money and income. Um, you know, one of the hard realities of life. But by the same token, I knew at that point that that's when I wanted to at least attempt to write a book. Uh, and that was 1993. And so that's what started me on the path of of actually writing books. So, um, yeah, that's that's how sort of fiction started for me. And um, what I did is at that time is I actually um, went to some bookstores. I called some bookstores in the U.S. when I was living in Germany and said, hey, um, you know, where would you start? Basically, um, if you were someone in my shoes and I explained sort of my situation and there's an amazing bookstore that used to, used to be there in, in Denver. And um, after explaining my, my situation, they were like, well, you've got to pick up a, a copy of Heimskringle. Mm -hmm. And it has all of these sagas in it. And you can find some really interesting characters in it, at least as a starting point, start there. And I bought it and I had it shipped over to Germany and I just started devouring it. Like just reading all of these different you know sagas and especially of the saga of the Kings. Um, and that's where I found some of my, my characters. Um, in fact, my first character, Hawken came directly out of, of Heimskringla. My next character, my next series, Olaf also, you know, his saga's in there as well. So, you know, that has been my, that's been my primary source for, um, at least for the, the bare bones of the story. Um, and then I sort of, I build from there. Yeah, when I was looking at your website and looking at sort of the focus, it seemed thematically very heavy in Norway. But now I was going to ask you about why that was, but now I know. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, it was, I mean, it is one of those places where 
Um, you have all of these tails sort of set one on top of the other. Um, and you have a lot of sort of lines between, you know, the characters from a, from a family sense. Um, so you can sort of connect the dots, even though a lot of, you know, the timing is off and um, it was written hundreds of years after these, these people actually existed. Um, I liked that fact because it gave me a lot of leeway in terms of storytelling. Have you been to Norway to get a feel of the place? I have actually on that trip when I was living in Germany, uh, before I came home, my wife and I, we had an option. We could actually either go to Spain and Portugal, or we could go to Scandinavia. And I begged and pleaded. And so, so we ended up driving up through Germany to Den all the way around Denmark, uh, took the ferry over to Sweden, did the West Coast of Sweden, and then drove all the way through Norway. Nice. Um, yeah. And funny enough, using Heimskringla as our guide. So I was literally like looking at some of the maps or in the version that I had and, and some of the place names that, are, you know, existed in that version um, and ended up finding some of these spots uh, that they're talking about, which was, you know, for me, it was a thrill. My wife was probably not as interested <laughs> as, as I was, but I was I was loving it. I can imagine you like the guy who was what using a the Iliad and the Odyssey to try to find Troy. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Exactly. And he totally exactly. did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, exactly right. To, backing up a little bit back to this uh, more fundamental question of why the Vikings, right? We start with the inspiration of, you know, D&D, &D, Lord of the Rings, that sort of thing. Right. But they have, those are inspired by all sorts of different historical cultures, including the ancient Celts, Anglo-Saxons, etc. So, so what was it about the Vikings in your estimation, reflecting on your journey that you latched onto more than any of the other historical groups? What made them the draw to where you sought out the you sought out them over getting a, you know, the the annals of Angudem, for example? <laughs> to look at the, yeah, the Franks it, or the Romans. Yeah. Yeah. It's it, that's a um fascinating, you know, question just because. That whole migration period is an amazing period in time. And I actually want to dive in deeper to it. I think the Vikings were most accessible from a storytelling standpoint, um, just as a people and a culture. And there had been a lot of research that was done at that point, just on term in terms of what they had done, where they had explored, what kind of technology that they had, as you know, what kind of culture they had. Um, I know that there is some of that um, done you know, with these other cultures as well. Um, and I, I do actually have it in the back of my mind to, to write some stories about some of those sort of tribes and clans and cultures as well. Um, but the Vikings, for me, the Vikings were actually the most successful and most interesting at the time. Um, and I do think, you know, there is a, there's an element of sort of the bad boy in Vikings. And I think that that may be one of the attractions, not necessarily for me per se, um, but lots of people, I think, are attracted to, you know, sort of the bad boy, anti-establishment um, persona, if you will. Um, and the Vikings sort of are, are that, right? They represent that in a lot of ways, um, especially if you look at what was happening at the time with the sort of the spread of Christianity um, and what Charlemagne had done in, in Germany and France. Um, and so I think that there was um, sort of this pushback. And, you know, the Vikings were, were that element, right? They were, you know, one of those sort of anti-establishment, anti, 
you know, Europe's central Europe cultures that, that were um, happening at the time. So, yeah, I, I just think it was sort of this combination of all these different things that, um, that drew my fascination. But that's, yeah, like I said, that's not to say that I won't dive into some of these other cultures in the future. So you're talking about the migration period. Have you ever thought about maybe if you're going to stick with Scandinavia, looking into like the Vendel period? Yeah, so the Vendel, the Visigoths, um, some, you know, some of those uh, tribes as well are really interesting to me. Um, I haven't really, I haven't had the time, quite frankly, to dive in deep to some of those. Um, but I do think that there is also, um, what's the best way to describe it? There, you know, with the fall of, with the fall of Rome, you had a lot of tribes moving about at that same time. Um, and one of the the questions in the back of my mind has always been what, a br what brought about that fall of Rome? What was happening at the time? Um, who were the elements or what were the elements that were actually driving that fall? Um, was it as much internal as it was external from this push in the migration period? Um, so those questions have always stuck with me. Um, and I think, you know, I want to explore that eventually. Um, like I said, I just haven't had the time to sort of dive in deep. Yeah, for storytelling, um, we're like cross-sell here, CJ. Like our, our, our guest uh, that we had pre uh, just not too long ago, right? Dan Carlin, he does podcasting and yeah, he, he did a really good one. I, I highly recommend for a deep dive into all of that that you were just talking about. It, it, he did it about 10 years ago um, and it's called Thor's Angels. And it's, it's all about that, sort of the fall of the Roman Empire, which he knows a lot about because he did a huge series on, on that whole thing anyway. But then getting into, you know, the Merovingians and Clovis, just all of the stuff that's, that comes right there, um, you know, the dynamics of what was going on. And it's like a four-hour podcast, but... No, I bet. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a ton it, of it, ground. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's really good for, you know, just like the basic story of what's going on there. I mean, it's really interesting. There's just a lot going on. There, There is a lot going on. And actually having lived in, in Germany for a while, um, also in Austria for a bit, in Switzerland for a bit, um, there's a lot of sort of that tribalism that still exists to a certain extent. Like the Bavarians were an actual people, even though they are a sort of a, a state now uh, within Germany. Um, and you get that all over the Turingians, for example, that was, those were, you know, that was a clan, a tribe that sort of developed into this state. So um, there were a lot of these different things that were happening. Um, you know, the writings of, of Caesar, for example, and, um, you know, the, just the tribes that he sort of talks about in, in his sort of battles, if you will, um, you know, all, all of that is to me, it's super fascinating. Well, even um, for the modern era, right? I mean, it's like those tribal people, as we call them that, but I mean, or the more regional kind of people, rather than a unified German state. I mean, that only happened right under Bismarck, like 150 years ago. All yeah, it's not that old. Yeah, all the way up until that period of time. I mean, they're definitely identifying more with being Saxon or Hessian or Bavarian or what have you, right? So, I mean, it's absolutely a long history of that in that part of the world. Yeah, and it's I mean, it's similar to similar to being in the U.S., right? You go, you know, east or south or you know or west, and you you get these sort of variations in culture. Um, you do the same in you know in France or in Germany or. You know, no matter where you are in, in Europe, I'm, you know, I haven't traveled that far east, but I'm sure it's the same there as well. Um, 
you know, so I, yeah, I mean, it, it is fascinating to travel from, for example, Bavaria all the way up to Northern Germany and just to see that variation in culture. Um, it still exists and it. It's still, I think, very sort of ingrained in, in them as a people. I'm sorry, you're going to say something, CJ. Oh, I was just going to add to the, this idea that there's this, this sort of identity emergence, you know, that's attached to old tribes from say the Roman era and everything. And I was just going to add whether appropriately or inappropriately, you know, population movements over time and the people in a given region may not be the same, you know, relate anywhere near related to the people that were there back at the time. But by virtue of being in that region, they think, oh, well, I'm, you know, a Veneti, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> the old Celtic tribe. But then you do a DNA test and it's like, you're from Sweden. Oh, yes. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Fair point. That is that is absolutely true. It's funny. I have a, you know, I have a German last name, but um, I did a DNA test and I'm more Scandinavian than I am German. Um, probably a little bit more, you know, English and French than I am German as well. So, you know, there you go. Yeah, that is the, the, that was the great disappointment for me in doing my DNA test, because a lot of people are having the, the surprise of, you know, saying, oh, I'm, you hear these people, or it was, is in the news too, right? Like all the white supremacists who are like, yeah, and they do a DNA test and it turns out they're like 8% black and they're like, yes. what? <laughs> and, and so I was excited. I was like, yes, okay, well, I'm going to do my DNA test. I, I want to know how much sub-Saharan African I have and how much, you know, all these other things I have. I took my DNA test and I'm all white. <laughs> I was so sad. <laughs> nothing. There wasn't even a strain, you know, something from Sub-Saharan no. Africa. Nothing. Wow. Zero. Everything was Western France, British Isles, 2% Sweden. There wasn't even Scandinavian, really, like 2% Sweden. Uh, I think the most exotic thing I had on there was like 1% Greek. <laughs> okay, well, that's, that's something. That's about as much as it got. Anyway, well, and I, I actually think, because I did uh, the Ancestry uh, DNA test. Yeah. And my mom and my uncle did um 23 and me and so we had we did have uh, a freed slave in our family history which is a really interesting story and but she's too far removed to have shown up on mine i think is what happened because on theirs they were like one six hundredth or something like that because of how far removed she was but somewhere up there uh and, and this is actually really funny the family name is raper so it's mm. <laughs> not exactly yeah. a it's still around, by the way. I was running through, uh, I was driving through somewhere in the valley and like there's a, there's a town named after them. And I was like, you should probably change that at some point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm risking to just spell it differently. Well, the best yeah. one is I have a great, great grandmother and her name was Fanny Raper. Oh, geez. And it wasn't a joke. Oh, and I wow. have a, I, we have pictures of her and she was a very stern. I mean, if you talk about like, you know, uh, uh, very, a very strong looking Scandinavian farmer's wife, right? Like that's what she looked like. She's just very, you know, you know, like she could carry the, the large sack of whatever flour or whatever. And, um, and apparently she was, she was a very tough, tough woman and she raised her kids very strictly and everything. But anyway, it was, but that name was just so unfortunate. She you can't make that up. That. <laughs> yeah. You cannot make that up. Nope. She had to develop that persona once, as soon as she became cognizant of what her name was when she's a kid. It's like, all right, I'm going to grow up to be the toughest woman that's ever lived, right? Yeah, I, I can't remember. <laughs> they, have, they have a picture of her in front of her house. I don't can't remember if it's Wilsonville or or Milton Freewater, somewhere in in uh, Eastern Oregon. So it was 
the goes way back, I guess. <laughs> well, so I have a there question for both of you as writers, um, you know, coming from the historian standpoint that I do, and that is, it seems to me that in more recent years, people who write historical fiction have been given, you know, quite a bit more sort of credibility than maybe academics would have given them before seemed to be like, you know, maybe second class citizen kind of status or something. But then you get, you know, I mean, people like yourselves and I know Hillary Mantle comes to mind and Philippa Gregory, other people who like, right, you know, can follow it, whatever, that really do the deep dive on the research that actually makes the backdrop, you know, credible as history. And I mean, it's just sort of sort of interesting to me, kind of wondering what you think about that, because it kind of reminds me, at least in the Viking Age context of, you know, what people argue about with the sagas, you know, is it history or are they stories, you know? Um, and I think the way that you all have been able to kind of, you know, mash that together in more recent years to have it be actually credible history that's just got, you know, this nice story to it. I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, I would say the credit goes to you <laughs> and, and, and historians. No, I mean, seriously, without without the research and without the, the details that are out there that we can rely on, we can't tell an accurate story. And I think accuracy is actually very important to this genre. Um, so um, I could tell, I mean, for example, like with the stories of Hakan or Olaf, there are a lot of details that are still kind of shrouded in the midst of time right um there's been a ton of research done but you know it's been hard to pinpoint for example the exact chronology of you know the characters and what their family members may have been may not have been but we knew what roughly what they ate we knew how a ship was made we knew um you know what vegetables they grew we knew what the halls looked like so without the research that had been done in those areas that sort of that general research I mean, it has to be right. Otherwise, you throw someone out of the story. And, you know, just actually referring back to Bernard Cromwell and, you know, one of his sort of tenets, key tenets is tell a good story first, right? Well, that's true, but you also have to sort of temper that with the research that's out there. If you tell a good story, but you've got some of the facts that are basic facts wrong, um, anyone that's reading this genre, I think, will be thrown out of the story almost instantly, and your credibility as an author will will go downhill. So, what are so, they looking for primarily? Are they are they looking for history, or are they looking for a story, or is it I, equal? I, well, I mean, I've I've had both, but I mean, I think first and foremost, look, my my goal is to actually write a good story that is enjoyable for the reader to read, but my readers are sort of minor historians. So they they will call they they may not know all the details, but I've been called out on on various things that I've actually had to go back and correct in early drafts of my my books before I put them out to the public. Um, had a you know vegetable wrong in you know the roos area, um, or you know a fish that didn't exist at the time, or whatever it was. You know what I mean? Like they'll go, I'll get called out on that, and and rightfully so, um, just because it was you know inaccurate research or. Um, I took a leap of faith thinking that something existed that didn't. Uh, and so, you know, again, I think the the his, historical research has been done by historians um, and all the studies that have been been done help us tremendously. And so I think the, the credit goes to you to help us write a good story um, with our goal being 
good story first and making sure that the history is right. Does that, does that make, does that make I, sense? You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, yes, thank you. Well, that's that's one of the things I appreciate about your your work, Eric, is it's it's typically more historical, right? It's it's when I read through your books, I'm not I don't like try to pick out where you went wrong. I just appreciate that you've you've got the detail in there that that is that for me, having kind of a crossover between, you know, novelist and historian, I'm just like, oh yeah, this is good. You know, like <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah. I so, mean, you've done the same, though. I mean, you've done a ton of research yeah. as well, CJ. So, yeah, you know, I, but it runs, I know that it, level. It runs the gamut, though, because uh, I the 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 twenty seventeen roundtable I did in Leeds, where we talked about you know how historical should historical fiction be, and one of the reasons I was there was because I had been identified as somebody who really toes the line. Right when I outline a book, I look at the dates and events first, and I go, okay, how can I fit the story in here while also fitting a good story structure, right? <laughs> Where my character goes through it's the hard. Right motions. Yeah. yeah. Uh, versus like on the other side of the podium, there's somebody who wrote about Viking zombies and vampires, right? And so it's a, it's a very different perspective. And I think it really comes down to how you sell yourself, right? Because uh, the gal who wrote those books, they're fun books, really good time. She does not sell herself as someone who's writing like historical fiction that's like, historical right for her it's more of a you know it's for it's it's more fiction right so there's this spectrum that we're all right. kind of trying to fit in and on the one hand you've got historical over here and fiction over here and we all kind of fit in different places and so really it's as, as an author my big thing is setting the correct expectation for people going into it so when i get like a review where it's like this was a great fantasy book and i go well i'm glad you like the story <laughs> yeah exactly but yes, i also I, put a lot of effort into not being fantasy <laughs> yeah. yeah there there is an element of um and i wrestle with this sometimes um because i get fascinated with some of the sort of the historical um details is not putting too much detail in it you should put enough detail in it to tell a good story but not get mired down in you know the fact that the candle was made out of you know beeswax because it was August or something. You know what I mean? Like it's just not, it's just not important to the story. And so I constantly sort of catch myself and ask myself, as a reader, would I enjoy this or is this just a fact that goes too far? Right. Knowing that fact as an author, I think is helpful just because you have that there, you know, as a resource in your head. Um, but from a storytelling standpoint there is a balance between getting too stuck in the history um, and telling a good story. And, and to that point, I would say actually the chronology is, is a really important one. So, you know, what you just touched on CJ, um, I do, it's sort of the, when I'm outlining my book, I look at chronology and I study it pretty carefully. Um, in Olaf's case, that chronology is all over the map. Like we roughly know when he was born. We roughly know when he, you know, we knew, we know where he died. Um, but everything in between is kind of up in the air. Um, and so you know, I dug and dug and dug and dug until I actually found a research report that said, this is exactly what we, this is not exactly, this is what we think he did in these certain areas. And this is where we think he was in these certain time frames. But all of it is pretty rough. And so one thing that I do or I try to make a point of is at the end of my books, having, you know, the historical notes section where I, I try to lay out the things that I didn't necessarily know, but are plausible enough so that 
people at least know, okay, he gave it a shot, but it may not be 100% accurate. Um, and it, it's just because the history isn't necessarily there yet. Um, and I think the, the history will catch up in time. It's just we haven't found we haven't found those details of those facts that we're looking for. So as somebody who likes to research and write, but not write in the same method that, that you all do, I'm sort of curious about, is it like a job and you can compartmentalize or are these people in these sort of formulations just like in your head, like all the time, no matter what you're doing? I mean, when I was thinking about, you know, that we were going to be talking to you a couple of days ago and I was running and running is a time when I think, right. And, but I'm also a very vivid dreamer and I'm thinking to myself, man, I bet you have some of the best stories probably maybe come to people like you, like, you know, at 2 a.m., like when you're sound asleep or something, do you have to like wake up and then write it down real quick? Or I mean, is it just haunting you all the time? Uh, not for me, CJ. I I'd be curious what you think. I mean, I uh, I I constantly have my best thoughts when I'm like working out, and then by the time I get to computer, they're kind of half gone. <laughs> so so my best work uh, just is just never going to make it to paper. You know, I, I I've just come to accept that. No, I, I do. I, yeah, exercise is a great time to like think about it. I don't know. It's like it kind of ebbs and flows. You know, one of the things that I was, I was actually, so my wife wants to write a book and she's been frustrated by starts and stops, starts and stops. And, and one of the things I said is you're not always going to be inspired. You're not always going to feel that spark of, of inspiration. And when it comes, it's great. It's, it's always a good, a good boost, but it's not something that is consistent enough to be able to see through a project as ambitious as writing an entire novel. So I said, just create the discipline, find, tw start with 20 minutes a day and write 20 minutes a day, following week, do 30 minutes a day, following week, do 40 minutes a day, right? Just build that into your life to where every day you sit down and you write something. It doesn't even have to be part of the same project. It's just developing that consistency. And then as you develop that consistency, then the inspiration just starts to just come in. It almost becomes like secondary. So now when I sit down to write my books, you know, I'll have my ideas outside of, you know, well, while I'm at the gym and everything. And I joke that I lose my best ideas out there, but really I don't because as long as I've structured it correctly and then I get in when I'm supposed to get in to do the work, as I'm doing the work, it just comes because it's just my body, my, my mind, my body's trained for that. The other thing I, I caution all the time, I actually get a lot of emails from aspiring writers, messages on Facebook, stuff like that. And the number one thing I say is don't think about the money. A lot of people think, oh, I want to write a book and I want to make money. I'm like, you, the odds are, I mean, if, if you're in this to make money, go buy a lottery ticket. That's my first, <laughs> first thing. <laughs> but, it's, but one of the things that really, I think, impacted me negatively, and people might shake, you know, kind of turn their heads at this statement, but as soon as my books became commercially successful and I started making good money, like on a level where I was about to leave my day job just before COVID, uh, that's when I stopped writing <laughs> because then I felt that the weight of that pressure, right? And nothing kills creativity more effectively than, than that carrot. I, I don't know why. And in fact, in, in my day job, because now I still have a day job because COVID did a number on my book sales, but well, we can circle back to that. But when I think about my day job and how to motivate people, right, I, I think through carefully about that experience and then like oh is this a creative job or is it you know if it's a creative job how do i motivate this person because i know if i dangle a carrot 
it might stifle their creativity, right? It's kind of that awareness. So through that experience, it's so it's interesting how that I just went way off on a different tangent there. No, <laughs> no, no, no. It's all it's works, all part you know? of it. Yeah, it's all part yeah. and parcel. I um everyone is different, you know, for some you know, creativity is different things to different people. Uh for me, you know, I have a day job and I work on my computer pretty much most of the day, but I have a writing app that I keep open. And so when ideas strike me, which is throughout the day, I'll just jump over into that app and I'll jot down the note for later. Uh, but I don't have the opportunity to write every day, um, nor do I think I want to. Um, I actually write on Fridays and I write on Sundays and I have a big chunk of time uh, that, that I use to, to write in. Um, and it's part of, for me, what works is the anticipation of writing so that when I actually do get to that, you know, those chunks of time, I'm, I'm like, jazz, I'm ready to roll. Um, doesn't always work that way. Like sometimes I'm like super jazz and I sit down and I'm staring at a blank page for, you know, two of the four hours that I have. Right. Um, but at least I have that chunk of time and I, I use it, you know, to the best of my ability. And, you know, to CJ's point, sometimes you're in the flow and sometimes, you know, you can bang out you know, five pages, 10 pages, and sometimes you're not, and you, you know, you sit there and struggle and you get like a paragraph down, right? Or at least that is, you know, in my case, that's what happens sometimes. Um, but that's okay. So I don't put any structure on myself to say, you know, I've got to write for 20 minutes a day, or um, I don't say, you know, I've got to write 2,500 words a day or whatever. I mean, there's, there's authors that do that and that works for them. And that's great. Um, I personally think that my writing gets stiff if I have that kind of structure um, because I'm actually forcing myself to get words on a page and those words could just be, you know, horrible and I'm going to have to start all over again the next day. So I'd rather just actually write a paragraph of moderately decent work rather than, you know, putting the structure on myself of, you know, I've got to get four pages down. Um, and then, you know, again, when inspiration strikes, you know, I'll jam out five pages or 10 pages and, you know, I find myself in the flow and I'm really, really sad when, you know, the, the four hours of my writing time is up uh, and or that four hours just goes by like that. You know, I'm completely sort of in the moment. I'm visualizing sort of everything I'm writing, um, you know, having a ball with it. And I just don't I'm completely unaware of time. So. Well, that yeah. brings to mind then something else that's kind of related to it as far as process goes, and especially with, well, just the nature of stories, obviously, right, where there's, you know, beginnings, middles, and ends, and things like that, but then also with history because of chronology, and we tend to think in sort of the linear kind of chronology. Um, I mean, even when I'm doing research and writing things, it's like, it's 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 all swirling it's just in my head and i'm picking up pieces of information as i'm doing research and whatever and they're just all up there as bits and then all of a sudden whatever i don't even know what'll trigger it but then i'll be like nope today's the day and then it's just like this mass vomit of words onto a page right but then it's all just you know there's like these fractured bits that don't necessarily have a timeline or a continuity and then for me it's like assembling puzzle pieces right to make a, a, co a coherent whole and so I'm wondering about are you thinking about like oh I'm I'm struck by this part of my story today so I'm going to write it but that's actually like two-thirds in the story but then tomorrow I'm going to go back and I'm going to write about like the very beginning or I already know what the end is do you is it like that or are you thinking in a kind of linear fashion well I think in linear fashion well first and foremost I want to go back to one point that I missed and that is um, CJ brought up you know the idea of a job 
Um, I try not to look at writing as a job. And in fact, it's not for me. It's really just a passion. Um, my job is my day job. That's what sort of earns the bread and butter. And that's what pays the bills. Um, everything else that I make off of writing is fun money. It's, you know, money that I use for enjoyment because it's what I enjoy to do, right? Um, ultimately, you know, when I retire, I can segue into writing full time, but it won't necessarily be one of those. I have to write. I got to get a book out. I need the money to do it. I don't want, I, don't, I never want sort of that pressure over me because I do think, CJ, to your point, it stifles your creativity. Um, so there's that said. Going back to your question um, about sort of story structure, the structure exists in an outline form, which is pretty loose for me, um, but it is linear in fashion, you know, with a beginning, middle, and end, um, you know, with the story sort of building to a climax and then and beyond. Um, but when I write, I can't write all over the place. Like I have to write in that linear fashion. I have to follow the outline because as I'm writing, sometimes things will occur to me that aren't going to work for later in the outline and I have to shift things around. Um, so, or character idea comes to me, or sometimes your characters actually develop their own characteristics. So they'll say something in a dialogue and you, you know, it's right, but it actually changes what you're going to write in the actual chapter. You're like, crap, like, you know, I didn't expect that, but you're like, that is so what that character would say. Um, and so it changes things and you've, you've got to adapt. Um, I, with my first book, I did that way too much. Now I'm a little bit more um, attuned to what I'm getting into and where I want my my story to develop and how. Um, so I try not to let my characters go off on too many tangents, but sometimes it happens and you just gotta, you gotta go with it. You're blaming these characters. That's, yeah, I mean. Like you, they're external things. Like they are external things. Crazy. Sometimes they, <laughs> yeah, they, they can be. I mean, when you get into... Um, or at least when I get into, you know, writing about some of these characters or writing in the voice of a character, um, you know, I try, I try my best to put my, you know, in myself in the character's shoes and, and try to think in terms of what they're thinking. By the way, I think that's one of the hardest parts of writing um, is putting yourself in the mindset of a character that existed 1200 years ago. Um, but that said, um, you know, yeah, sometimes they actually take on a, you know, uh, attributes of their own and and you just know that that is intrinsically I know that that is just right for that character actually that brings up another question so how do you get into the mindset not only of 1200 years ago but maybe what about like a different sex than you right how, how are you in the head of a viking age woman or something yeah it's it's that is tricky um because you have to think in terms of you know what would they think about mythology right you can't apply you can't apply uh, or the cosmos, you can't apply what we think of today as Christianity to what Christianity was 1200 years ago. And so I, I would say maybe I do a moderate job of that. Um, I still struggle with it just because it's really, really difficult, no matter how much research is out there, um, to think, okay, this is what a monk would have done or said, or, you know, this is what a Viking <clears throat> who believes this and this would have said or done. It's just, it's very tricky. I you, ever, you ever say to your wife, honey, is this how a woman would react in this situation? <laughs> I haven't done that yet, but I, I've been close. I've been pretty close. That brings up a really interesting question that I've actually had some positive feedback about and negative feedback about for my books. 
I don't try to do that at all. I don't believe that it is possible to really understand the point of view of these people from that time. We can only really see the events from a 10,000 foot view, but mm -hmm. culturally, linguistically, I mean, we know that language plays a significant role in how we think and view the world. It shapes who we are and how we, how we interact with the world around us. And, I, and that is just too Herculean of a task to really be able to pull off. And even if I were able to pull it off, the people in my stories would end up so different than who we are today that it would completely alienate them as readers. They wouldn't be able to identify themselves in the story. And so then I wouldn't be writing a good story. And I have a really good example of, of what happens when, when creators, and this can be novels, movies, et cetera, try to do that to a, an extreme degree and it's that movie the north man where they were try they try so hard to be authentic with like you know and and it the people in the film were so foreign to us we couldn't identify with them and we couldn't follow what i like to call the narrative mode it's i don't like it's just called the narrative motivation like i just didn't i couldn't identify with emleth or any of the other characters in the in the in the film and maybe, maybe historically, it's the most authentic representation we can come up with. But it for view everybody, everybody panned the movie because it was like, oh, it sucked. And and if you ask most people why they didn't like the movie, they, there's nothing tangible for them to hold on to. They, they most people that I say, oh, why didn't you like the movie? I it just it just didn't it didn't speak to me. And that's yeah. because the characters were completely unrelatable so with my books i i have been criticized where people will say well it's not you know somebody mentioned that like my main character talks like he's you know coming out of rehab in palo alto and i was like <laughs> i mean yeah because that's that is relevant to our modern experience and i want my readers to be able to see themselves in this character and and understand the change that he's going through right so it's so i'm speaking so when i write my historical fiction i am speaking modern human development stories human growth stories but in a in a context in the past and when you think about how i got into this whole thing in the first place was i started as a school teacher i wanted to like get kids interested in the past and how do you do that well you you present it in a way that they can identify with and so yeah my character might sound like he's coming out of rehab in palo alto but people can latch on to that and then they'll start reading the story and say oh this is a really interesting time and place and if i can get a couple of people even just one to start researching the real or come to the podcast and learn the real history as a result of that and enrich their lives by learning history, which you and I, Terry, have talked a lot about the value of that, then it's a win. It's a total win all around. Oh, you're yeah. such a historian in your heart. You're just you're a historian who happens to be a writer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's I mean, it's it's a really good point. Um, my very, you know, first book, God's Hammer. Um I, I think I gave it, uh, well, let's put it this way. The story is about, it starts with, um, with Hawken when he was 14, 13, 14. It starts with he's eight, but basically sort of the story takes off when he's 13 or 14. And he's been raised in this Christian court and he's going back to Norway, which is a pagan land at that time. Um, and a lot of readers, he was polarizing for a lot of readers, um, primarily because they thought, either he was sort of over the top Christian um, and they just didn't like that. He wasn't nuanced enough. Let's put it that way. Um, and 
I felt like what I try to do is I try to make him sort of this idealistic 14 year old boy, because as a 14 year old boy, things are pretty black and white. They're not necessarily, you don't see a whole lot of gray um, at that you know time in your life, right? Things you get tempered over time and, and, you know, see a lot more gray as you get older. Um, and so you, ended up being readers ended up being in one camp or the other they either identified with it or they didn't identify with it and as a result 50 percent of the readers kind of dropped off and the other 50 percent ended up reading books two and three so you know it, it is the way things go but by the same token i've just tried to create characters that people identify with to your point cj um but i still try to figure out what that mindset would be in that day and age um, to help them make their decisions in you know, life or action or, or whatever it is. Um, you know, and I think Bernard Cornwell does a very good job of that. Um, you know, just in terms of figuring out like what a character's decision-making might look like um, in that time frame versus, you know, applying sort of the modern sensibilities to it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's always, like I said, it is, it is I think, the trickiest part of, of writing. Um, I still find it super tricky. Um, I don't want to, I, I, by any stretch, I don't think I'll ever be able to really effectively say this is what, you know, someone 1200 years ago would, would think, and this is a decision he or she would make as a result of that. Um, so I, I've now sort of landed in that spot of, is this character, um, do I have sympathy for this character or empathy? Cause I've been through something similar um, is this a story that I can relate to and identify with um, and draw readers in that way? Um, I've probably done a, a more effective job of that, I think, in the second series than the first, um, quite frankly. But, you know, first one was, you know, my first books out of the gate. And, you know, the readers, like I said, have, have come along over time. And so um, I hope to continue that going into the future. I think it's a very good reflection of the tension that even exists with, with history as a profession and a discipline of the idea of um, are there these common things that we do just because we're humans, no matter where we are in time and place and, you know, ways we respond to certain things or what have you, or does historical context matter? And we can't really know, even though we're humans and Vikings were humans 1200 years ago, but because they lived in such an utterly different world that we just really, we can't know it. Uh, or as, you know, there's a, a basis for which we can know it because we're all still human beings, right? It's like, yeah, it, it there is that balance for sure. Um, you know, but if you read some of the sagas and you see sort of the decisions that some of the characters in the sagas make, you know, modern people wouldn't necessarily make those you know decisions right like just you know some of the some of the things that they do for you know retribution or you know that person stole my sheep so i'm gonna go you know kill his wife or whatever you know whatever it is although no, I, mean, but I mean the idea of retribution though i mean it's just the mechanism for how you play it out is different but the it, idea of getting revenge is still the same right? that is absolutely right yeah so it's it you know, to a certain extent, I think the readers have to identify with what the thing is, if it's revenge, um, what that looks like and how it plays out is, you know, I think will vary with time. So I, I just wanted to add to, I have two things. 
I, one of them I'm extremely excited about, and Terry just brought it up, and I'm going to dive into it and get a little too excited. So get ready for that. <laughs> uh, but just to circle back to one of the things that you mentioned, Eric, uh, for your book, Hackon. So disclaimer for our viewers, I have read all of Eric's works, and I'm a fan, so I'm biased. Thank you. But also the the character Hackon, actually, when you're talking about that, how there's a 50-50 people thought he was relatable. I thought he was very relatable in his faults. I thought you did a very good job of showing this, his narrative motivation of having kind of this outward, I'm a Christian, da, 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 but then he would act contrary to that in certain respects, right? And I, and, but it was so subtle that like, it was, is very, you know, human, right? Because, yeah. you know, I, I think I'm at fault sometimes in my writing of making it too obvious, <laughs> right? Yeah. And you, you added that subtlety. So maybe, I don't, so I don't know about the 50, 50. I'm, I imagine, I mean, I thought it was very well. Yeah, done, I, so. I mean, I'm, I'm self-critical obviously, right? It's, it's my work. And I'm oh sure yeah. It's, it's never dream, finished. But, right. It's um, never finished. Then, never quite done, but, um, but yeah, but I then, mean, for, well, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. You were going to finish. I, I was going to go on to Terry's thing. You go ahead and finish your thought. Oh, I was just going to say that, um, yeah, it may not be 50, 50 split, but you know, a lot of people sort of just didn't relate to sort of the, the Christianity that exists within Hawken as a character in the first book. Um, they related more um, in the second and third books. But what I tried to do in the first book was sort of that balance between Hawken as a character and a Christian boy going into a pagan land and wrestling with uh, what should I do as a ruler, you know, of this realm versus what do I want to do as a person, given how I was, I was raised. Um, and I think that that was, you know, that must have been a hard choice for, um, for Hawken at the time. Um, I can't imagine it wouldn't have been, um, in particular, because he had all of these advisors in particular, you know, um, Sigurd, who is his, you know, his main advisor, who had been a ruler of his realm in Trondheim for, you know, many years at that point. And so, you know, he had his own mindset of what he wanted to achieve. Um, and is probably dumping some of that on on Hakan. And so Hakan's got to wrestle with a, you know, do I follow what Sigurd is telling me? Do I do my own thing, given my own background and upbringing? So yeah, there was there there was a lot of different things coming into play. But I again, I just think that people didn't relate necessarily um, to the Christianity that existed within Hakan as a fourteen year old boy. Which I don't I don't think people nowadays can relate to the fact that a 14 year old boy would ever be given sort of that, well, and that, that power was, and authority anyway. Right. That that was the basis of the story. I'm like, how does a 14 year old boy A become a king in, in Norway, but B become a king in Norway when it's a pagan land and he's a Christian? Like to me, that's fascinating. And then end up, you know, ruling for 30 years. So, you know, all of that to me was like that was the sort of the premise of the of the whole series, which is how does this happen? So, all right, CJ, go. What were you gonna say? <laughs> I'm excited. You get you 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 saw me go over to my bookshelf. Yeah. I do that a lot. That's like the, that is the theme of this show. Is uh oh, CJ's going to bookshelf. <laughs> oh, what, what are we bringing out? I, I have uh. Well, what's funny is earlier I was looking. I have a bunch of books missing because I like to loan my books out. So I have some that are floating out there. I have to figure out who has them and and get them back. Uh, because I've got this bookshelf now. I got my big bookshelf downstairs of all. I mean. I don't like moving because of my books. That's the big thing. I just don't like moving my books. There's a whole, there's a whole garage full of them. Uh, but back to your, your question, Terry, about is there something 
that we share just as humans across all the ages? And that is a fascinating question that, uh, as far as my work is concerned, is answerable by the hero uh, with a thousand faces. So mm -hmm. what is what is human? Love and that. this is going back to the idea of, of I, I never make the presumption that I can know how people would behave and act in a certain time period because culturally, linguistically, everything's different. But what hasn't changed is what uh, Carl Jung, the Jungian, you know, well, I can't call him a Jungian psychologist. He was the first one, Carl Jung. Anyway, uh, Carl Jung called archetypal, which are things that we all share psychologically. And what the hero's journey is, it is a process of change. And as writers, uh, Eric, uh, I'm sure you can identify with this. As writers, what we do with our characters is we take them through a process of change. And as long as we follow the right ingredients, we are probably pretty darn close to how people, no matter how far back we go, we're living through the process of change, which they would have learned from their shared mythologies that are echoed. And all the world mythologies hit on these same points. That's why this is such a great book, because it takes all the mythologies in the world and it finds those common threads. So it's it's... We're not reinventing the wheel, but also by sharing that process of change and placing these people in the past, we're we're almost like promoting similar things in our readers, right? Like that's one of the things that sometimes, you know, like uh, going back to the historian deal. Uh, yeah, I want people to learn more about history and there's value to that. But also if people can watch my character go through this process of change, you know, in the back of their minds, their subconscious, whatever it is, whatever they're going through in their lives at that time, it might inspire something, right, to help them change and grow, which, um, so I, I got a little excited there, but then. Oh, I, I love that book, and I actually love um, the notion of it, which is that not only is is the book, does it give you kind of a roadmap for telling stories, um, but it's also, people argue, sort of ingrained in our DNA, because these stories have followed the same structure since stories have been told, um, you know, we relate to that story. We understand sort of at a deeper level um, a story if it is told sort of in this similar fashion. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I rely on that a ton, um, you know, in terms of all the stories that I've told. I just posted that clip yesterday, right, CJ? Like <laughs> yeah. on our social media, it's like me saying, "We know human brains are hardwired for storytelling. It's just yeah. it's how we experience the world." Yeah, I, so, I, I so love it. Talked, so yeah, I'm I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, we've talked about uh, what I hope to get, or what I hope readers get out of my work. But Eric, what what do you hope your readers take away from your work? Um, first and foremost, just enjoyment a good story. Um, second, uh, a little bit of history, if they walk away. Um, my audience, you know, is primarily interested in history. They're reading historical fiction for a reason. Um, and so I would say those two things are kind of the top. Um, and if they have enjoyed my books well enough, then they'll move on to the next book and the next book in the series. But again, you know, sales isn't, isn't the driving force for me is actually just telling a good story. That is, what, I, you uh, know, I, I will, I will, you know, I'll not lose sleep over it, but that is first and foremost, you know, whenever I'm writing a book, it's like, is this a good story? That'll be the, the main question in my head.
the best craft of any kind in my mind comes from people who are doing it for the enjoyment of it because they like it yeah and uh, what can it. we what can we expect from you in the future what are your plans moving forward um i got big plans man i got no, i'm kidding <laughs> um so first is to finish up this series um olaf saga um so i've got at least two more books maybe three um as as both of you know he covers a lot of ground and so um trying to break it into you know um digestible chunks is is kind of is a trick um so i want to finish off the series but i also um have been asked and and i want to get it into um uh um books on tape or basically what am i trying to say help me out audiobooks audiobooks, audiobooks. thank you um audiobooks uh and right now it's just available on amazon and i want to sort of go broad with it as well so getting it out to you know a lot of the different booksellers so that's sort of the immediate goals in front of me are writing those books and then sort of expanding that distribution um and then it's um you know talking about other things in real in re research and and whether or not i actually move on to more viking stories or whether or not i actually dive into other histories i'm not sure yet well, you're, um, in I have, I, you're in california what about screenwriting you know i've been asked that a ton and i i just don't have first of all i've never written a screenplay and i really don't that's not what i aspire to do um i've I have a lot of friends in the industry. A lot of people have asked me the question. Um, if someone wants to take the screenplay or, you know, take the book and adapt it to a screenplay, yeah, knock yourself out. Um, be awesome. I'd love to see it on, you know, in film. Yeah, actually, that's um, more kind of what I was thinking of. Yeah, so, I, I would love to see it, you know, in that format. Um, I just don't want to do that. You know, I like writing books. Um, for as long as I can write the books, like, you know, with a lot of things going on with AI and stuff. Maybe it's not me that's writing it in the future. Maybe it's some technology that takes over for me. I'm not sure. Uh, no, I mean, you know, I, I just want to keep writing. That's really my goal, my dream. I feel like writing a novel is is irreplaceable. You know, I've played around with Chat Chat GPT and oh, yeah. tried to see what it says and and what it puts out is just it's it's comical you know i think yeah, to the untrained pretty... eye it might be like oh this is pretty good but yeah you, you know you read it you're like however the uh you just in, if you do want to write the screenplay you can set it up to where you can just copy and paste your novel into it and it'll write the screenplay for you and it actually it's it's pretty darn good because it'll take your actual like lines of of dialogue and then it'll just kind of say it just reformats it for you that way I, I played with it a little bit and I was like, this is really impressive and also terrifying. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. It's the terrifying part that I, you know, that I worry about. Um, and, you know, I, I do have some people that are sort of waiting in the wings to uh, potentially do a screenplay out of it. But, you know, whether that comes to fruition or not, uh, you know, it's not a stress for me. It's kind of like, great. You know, if, if you do it when you have the time, awesome. Um, but it's, you know, again, I have other things that I, I want to do, um, with my books first that, um, you know, that I'm going to focus on. Great. So. Well, uh, that's, that takes us to about an hour. I think that 
that uh, is a good place to leave it. So Eric, thank you again for joining us on our show today. Thank you for the invite. Um, love talking to you both. So um, hopefully we can do it again at some point in the future. Yeah, great to meet you. Okay. Yeah, nice meeting you as well, Tarek. 